our grandparents' generation didn't have to worry about how to explain traditional marriage to their 10-year-olds. But today, living in a culture that lacks a moral compass, we have to equip our kids to understand and own the truth about these issues. Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, and I'm joined here today by Layla Miller. She's a Catholic author and mom to eight kids. Her books have been Raising Chaste Catholic Men, Primal Loss, The Now Adult Children Divorce Speak, and the current book, which we'll be talking about today, is Made This Way, How to Prepare Kids to Face Today's Tough Moral Issues. And both books, Made This Way and Primal Loss, have been endorsed by Cardinal Sarah. So Layla, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. I'm so glad to be here, Chloe. Thank you. Absolutely. So I read through this book from Catholic Answers before our podcast, and it's such a beautiful resource. I think the conversations that are happening in today's world, in today's culture, especially with little kids, can be conversations that can be easy to shy away from or not want to have with kids or not really know how to react with inquisitive questions from little people. So I think it's just such a great resource. I'm excited to share this with our listeners. Oh, thank you. Yes. I think it kind of fills a void because things have been happening happening so quickly in the culture that I don't even know if there's been time to catch up with it. So hopefully this will be a resource that people can apply to the things that are happening today, which weren't even necessarily happening three or four years ago. Yeah, I think back on how parenting has changed generationally. Like I think back to my grandparents' generation and they didn't have to worry about having conversations and explaining concepts like transgenderism to their kids or helping their teenagers defend the definition of marriage to their classmates. But today's kids are being raised in a world that's just rocked by things like relativism, a lack of a moral compass. So why is it important to bring up these tough subjects with our kids today and not shy away from those heavier topics? Well, we almost have to because the culture today is forcing our hand in many ways, and the culture just stands ready to rip down any type of formation that we're giving to our kids. You know, it used to be even maybe some of the more explicit stuff about sexuality might be reserved for primetime TV or things that were out of reach of the little kids, but today... We can pretty much assure ourselves that even in the schools, the elementary schools, the libraries now, kids' shows, kids' books, these topics are being introduced on purpose in order to get our kids to really normalize them and accept them. And so it's everywhere. We have to be preemptive. We have to step up even more now that the culture is not backing up parents, because in the past, the culture did back up parents. I mean, now we're even talking a few decades ago, but, but we're really in a place where if we don't form our children correctly from a young age, the culture will form them and deform them. So it's it's super important. In your process of writing Made This Way and your experience too as a parent, what are some reasons that parents are stopped from teaching their kids the truth or the hesitancies that they have in bringing up those conversations or even responding to those conversations when they're started by their kids? There's a couple of things. Uh, First of all, just a general lack of confidence that parents have today. We are human creatures. We don't want to be different. You know, we don't want to be socially shamed. And that's just a natural, I don't want to be, I mean, nobody wants to kind of have that label on you that you're kind of mean or, you know, you hate people or what's wrong with you or why don't you get with it? And, you know, you're, you, this is child abuse against your child if you're teaching them these old ways of thinking. It's bigoted. So we get very, well, it, there's a, a certain amount of, and I'm not blaming anyone because I'm the same way in many ways, but, you know, you get a little bit cowardly because you don't want to step up and be that person that's going to take that social shame on you and maybe even on your children. So we have this lack of confidence as parents, and that has to be overcome. And and part of it is that we as parents weren't necessarily catechized very well ourselves. 
I grew up in the 70s and the 80s being catechized, you know, as a Catholic, and we were very poorly taught. There was nothing there that would help in these types of situations. And so part of what we're doing even with the book is we're making sure that the parents, as they read through it to learn how to talk to their kids, we're catechizing the parents as well. We're giving them an entire chapter, you know, an easy short chapter on each subject, which goes through what the church teaches on that issue. And so that's the first step. You'll stay one step ahead of your kids by knowing what the subject matter is and how to teach it. But we, we haven't had good catechesis, so that's part of our lack of confidence. No, that makes a lot of sense. I love how this book is structured. You're talking about the structure of the chapters. And I love how natural law is something that's emphasized, especially in those first couple of chapters, but throughout the book as well. And it makes sense because kids accept a worldview that makes sense, even in some ways, if that worldview kind of flies in the face of what's being offered as true, quote unquote, true from today's culture. And you argue in the book that Kids aren't made just to receive the rules and regulations about the church teaching, but the reasons why those teachings exist. So why is a conversation and an understanding of that natural law important when it comes to talking to our kids about those tough subjects? You know, it's part of our, part of the patrimony of the church is that we have traditionally always used this kind of natural law teaching to teach the moral law. And I never knew what that term was. I never even knew what that word was. I just knew that when I was raising my, I have still I have one that's eight, uh, uh, with age 27 down to eight, but five of them are adults now. And when I was teaching the kids before I knew this term even, I always, just because my mind kind of works in a logical way, things have to make sense to me, I taught in a way that I found out later is a natural law way of teaching. I didn't know that that's what the church did. I didn't know that that's what we've lost in the last few decades. But basically what that is, is that we can know um, through just use of our reason what the nature of something is and how it should be used. So we can we can ascertain that the the moral law just by using our reason. So and and natural law meaning you ask a question kind of in your you, this is how we can understand it as adults. You know what is the nature of a thing? What's the nature of a thing? And and then how do you use that thing according to its nature? So for example, it's it's it sounds more complicated than it is. You could start uh, teaching your children to think logically and and with reason on these things by funny little games like you might say hey you know honey what would happen if daddy put molasses in the gas tank for the car and your child could go what you know that doesn't that wouldn't work that car wouldn't run oh yeah we need gasoline that's how it's designed to run that's the nature of a car you know what about if mommy tried to brush her hair with a chair you know, they'd laugh, that's silly, that's not, you can't do that, that wouldn't work. And right, exactly, chairs are for sitting, but combs are for brushing. And then you can sort of indoctrinate them, which just simply means to teach them, um, with the idea that things have a nature. Things used according to their nature tend to, then we have, we have flourishing. Things tend to flourish when things are used according to their nature. And things tend to go badly when we use something against its nature. And so, of course, we would be applying that type of reasoning to human sexuality and how God made our bodies and how God made marriage and how God made um, sexuality and, and male and female. I love that. I remember I'm all, I'm one of eight. So this I, I love just mm-hmm. feeling at home in this conversation because it's like, I know what that looks like. I know what those, the big family mm-hmm. looks like. And I love how thinking back on when my mom and dad were raising me and I have to thank them so much for my Catholic education. But one thing was that whenever we had questions, whether it was about church teachings or the sacraments or human sexuality, um, and we'd bring them up, it was, we never heard like, it's just because, like, that's just because that's what the church teaches. Or you know what, that's just what we do. You just kind of have to accept it and roll with it. And I look 
looking back, like value that so much because it's such a way to honor a child's question um, and to honor the way that their mind works. Um, and I love that, how that's just a really good base for, you know, don't, it's easy to fall back into that. You know, that's just what we do, but that's not really honoring mm-hmm. the question. That is key. I can't stress that enough. Um, the the idea that we would either say, well, because the church says so, or, or you know, I don't know, probably the church will change, or th- that those would be two completely wrong ways to discuss or answer a question from a child about what the church teaches or about anything. You would definitely, it, it, hopefully, if we don't know the answer ourselves, we would say, oh, honey, I'll make sure that I'm going to get, I'm going to get that answer for you because the church just has such a richness of, of um, you know, two thousand years of this type of teaching, and, and they put it together so beautifully, and I will bring you that answer so that we can know exactly what the answer is together, you know, or if you don't know. And if you, if you do know, then, of course, you definitely want to um, bring them into that conversation and be very happy that they asked the question. And that, that's true for any type of these questions, whether it's just on church teaching or whether it's something that they heard out on the street or in the schools. You want to always be open to listening to those questions, nothing, I would tell my kids, and they know, you know, nothing is, is off limits. No topic is off limits. You have to be open to whatever question they have. And um, otherwise, if you recoil or ignore them or just sort of even are horrified or whatever, shame them, they're never really going to come back to you for that question or that type of question. They're going to go to the Internet. They're going to go to their peers. So whatever question your, your child brings you want to be the one that they know they can come to and get a friendly, solid, truthful answer. And so it sounds like you had the, that type of parent, which is truly a gift, and yeah. we all need to strive for that. Amen. Yeah, definitely a gift for sure. When we're talking about conversations with kids, look back on my like my family. My littlest sister is six, and, and I'm 23. And so the conversations that my mom has with me about, say, tough issues like pornography at 23 are going to be significantly different than the conversations that she has with my six-year-old sister about the same subject. So how do parents mm-hmm. discern how deep to go and heavy to go with kids at different ages about those tougher subjects, especially about topics about human sexuality? Yeah, it's great that we have this guide. Um, we talk about there's a 1995 document that you can just – down, you know, you can print off the internet uh, called, it's from the Pontifical Council for the Family called uh, The Truth and Meaning of Human Sexuality, and it's guidelines for education in the home. And one thing that it says is that there is this age of innocence of children. There's a latency period, and JP2 talks about this a lot as well. And that's about from the ages, you know, four or five up until um, puberty or even, you know, into the late middle school or teen years or whenever they start to, you know, go through puberty. But those years should be undisturbed as far as explicit sexual talk. And so you wouldn't want to do what most of the schools are doing now or what other people are doing now, which is to bring these explicit details of human sexuality to these children in an age where they should be just carefree. They should not be thinking about sexuality or sex. And then all the teaching would be more indirect. Um, you know, oh, mommy's having a baby, isn't that beautiful? You know, they would kind of look around and see that how the interplay between a husband and a wife, and but they wouldn't need direct teaching. Um, explicit is what I is what I mean to say. So, of course, now the culture is forcing our hand, right. unfortunately, too often with our little ones. And then in those cases, you would want to maybe 
if they come to you with something, buy a little time by asking some questions of them. You're like, oh, well, honey, where did you, where did you hear that? Or you know, oh, what what do, what do you think that means? Because you don't want to go too far and anticipate something that they never even meant to ask because right. they you know they got they they were thinking about something so totally different. So you kind of have to gauge where they are, what they've heard, and then you have to carefully decide how to finesse that situation when it comes up. But so sometimes our, our hands are forced, but uh, we still want to be as delicate as we can and not go too far in explaining something when they're little. And then, of course, when they're teens, you can, at least as far as my family and the way we are, we're very open. We're very open with the teens and above because they need to know these things. It's all around them. And they're past the age of puberty. You know, they can make babies. They can do all these things. They need to know what they need to know. So um, completely different situation, which is why we broke down the chapters that way. You know, we have one chapter that'll say what to say to the little kids and one chapter that says what to, how to talk to the teens. Yeah, I love that. And I love the how you how you mentioned too, like asking questions to find out, you know, what are they really asking? Because you're right, it's easy to get in that heat of the moment and be like, oh gosh, this is going to come up and I knew this was going to come up and how am I going to answer it? And they must mean this. And then it could just be mm-hmm. a completely different conversation and a completely different question that they're wanting to bring up. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So each of the chapters of the new book tackles a different hard topic that we need to discuss with our kids as parents. But All of these topics stem from our culture's failure to understand the nature of sex and the meaning of marriage. So why is it important to help kids understand the purpose of our bodies and especially why our bodies and sexuality and sex aren't bad or dirty? Mm -hmm. The church is amazing because the church is very clear that sex is sacred. So it's not dirty at all. It's, Mm -hmm. It's sacred and it has a context. It has a time and a place just like anything else that is holy or sacred or set apart. And so when we take something like sex and make it common or make it casual, that's like profaning something sacred. So to say that, uh, you know, the sacrament of marriage, for example, that's the sacrament, the stuff of the sacrament is the sexual act. I mean, that's what makes a marriage, you know, actually um, indissoluble once that, once it's consummated. So the uh, the idea that, sex is dirty or our bodies are dirty. It just doesn't square with anything that the church teaches. And the body itself, we have to remember, and we tell our kids, the body, you know, we are humans. We are body and soul. So we're not like a trapped, you know, spirit that's trapped inside. You know, we're not the ghosts in the machine. We, we actually are integrated body and soul. So every part of us is good. It's part of God's creation. A lot of these sexual issues wants to sort of separate the mind and the body or the um, the soul and the body in some way. And no, we're integrated. So all of it is good and all of it just has to be used with integrity. So even stuff like, you know, we say to kids personally in our family, we use the term private parts a lot. Not because, oh, you know, you want to hide something dirty, but no, because you're you're not revealing something that's very um, intimate. And that's good. You know, that's a good thing. And so we also, that's a reminder that private parts are private. That's that's right. They're private. <laughs> so, um, but it doesn't imply dirty. It doesn't imply anything like that. There's a lot of things that are private that are very um, sacred. We can't, we just have to make sure that we have a Catholic theology and not more of a, you know, some kind of puritanical or, you know, body bad, spirit good. We, we don't subscribe to that. 
Right. Right. Especially as Catholics. And it's easy to, you know, fall into the trap of thinking like, well, the church teaches that sex is bad or sex is dirty. And like you said, like, that's the exact opposite of what the church teaches. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the church teaches that sex is holy and good. And that has ramifications to how we, how we teach our children when they're young or when they're teenagers about sex. I do a lot of uh, ministry with young adults and especially couples who are getting ready to get married. It's hard to break ideologies that you've, that you've grown up with mm-hmm. from your family of origin. And if you've been taught that you know, sex is bad and sex is dirty and that's something that we don't do. And then you get married and then all of a sudden, like, sex is good and sex is holy. Mm -hmm. It's just a really hard switch to flip back and forth between the two. And so, it you know, it may seem that, like, conversations that you have with your little kids are just conversations you have with your kids when they're little, but that's not true. That definitely goes into the formation of how they think about things, especially into adulthood. Oh, absolutely. No, it's very important. I mean, anything, if you have a joy about it and um, a reverence about it, you know, even, even playfulness with your spouse or, you know, just the fact that you aren't um, putting out any vibe that, ooh, you know, this is, this is just to make a baby or this is just something, you know, that we only think is, is, you know, it's just so bad otherwise, but okay, we'll tolerate it in marriage or something. No, no, no. (laughs) And a lot of people, you know, previous generations did that. And so we need to break away from that. And, and, and the corollary, which is that, oh, sex is great anytime, anywhere, any place with anyone. I mean, so we have the, the, the beauty, the, the perfect, um, balance of everything, because of course it's the truth and, and we don't want to go to either extreme. We want to go right to the center, which is the truth of it. Mm-hmm. We're talking about questions that kids could ask about tough moral issues that may catch us off guard as parents. And sometimes little kids do ask questions that tend to catch us off guard, whether that's from the backseat of the car while you're driving to someplace or in the grocery store because they've seen something on the magazines and the checkout line. Do you have any recommendations for how to respond to questions that seem to come out of the blue while honoring a child's question and protecting their innocence in, in regards to where they're at in their development? Yeah, you know, my my number one rule always is don't freak out. Like, mm-hmm. whatever you hear, whatever comes to you, even if you have to pretend that you're not shocked or pretend that you're not horrified if they say something or talk about a term or a, an act or something that you, you know that they came to them from the outside, don't freak out. You know, that's, they're coming to you because they trust you. That's beautiful. That's, little kids always trust their parents. That's, that's how God made them. So as long as you cultivate that trust, they're going to continue to trust you into the teen years as well. But you have to not be, you're the adult, so you are the one that it isn't going to lose it, you know, or, or lose your cool or your emotions get out of control. Even if you have to, I tell, I tell people this all the time, be an actor, you know, learn how to act. Even if you're dying inside because they're saying something that you just can't believe you heard come out of your, you know, little angel's mouth, they're coming to you. You don't want to respond with anything other than just a pleasant face and a concerned, not concerned in a bad way, but just that, you know, yes, I want to hear your, I want to hear what you're saying and I want to give you the right response. And so, you know, take a deep breath. Don't let your face betray whatever's going on inside. Practice that if you have to, but soon it'll just become kind of natural, you know, especially as the more kids you have, you'll get to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, that's not a big deal. They're, they're asking this question, and yeah, I've dealt with that a million times. So, um, But everybody gets nervous and, and upset, but don't, because your child, you want that conversation with them. You, you want your child to come to you. So, again, ask those questions. Maybe see what they, uh, what they heard and what they think first to buy some time to think about it like we talked about, but just 
be confident that God gave you these children and he wants you to form them. And there's such a grace that comes with parenting too. Like God doesn't just toss us out as parents into the deep water and you know, oh, hey, I hope you can swim. Like there's so much grace that comes with that as part of the vocation of marriage for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much grace and that is, he will equip you. He, he does equip you. Prayer is a huge part of it. Be a prayerful parent. But um, And also really live your faith. Children know whether or not you take your faith seriously. They know that innately. So if you're, for example, using contraception or talking about how, you know, yep, you know, we're not having any more babies, you know, daddy had a special surgery, or, you know, or something like that, well, they're going to know you don't really take your faith that seriously, and they're going to learn that as they grow. So make sure that you are living the faith with true fidelity, and then they will be, they'll see you as a person of integrity who can speak to these issues because you live it. Right. I love how this all goes into building a culture of trust between parents and children and how there's that emphasis of like, you do want them to come to you with those questions and you do want them to learn from you when it comes to these big issues. And we can be really diligent as parents and have great conversations about sexuality with our kids and about marriage with our kids. But sometimes we can't prevent all the violations that come to our child to our child's in a sense through social media or through their classmates. So if you're in a conversation with your child and you realize that they've learned something about human sexuality, not from you, but from details from social media or from their classmates or their friends. What, what can you do as a parent at that point? So, you know, yeah, that, that, when that happens, um, and it, and it, it's likely to, with all the screens that everybody's on right now, um, it's difficult. I personally, if there's a way to preempt it, you know, the screens, we have a, a rule in our family, you know, our computer is down in the main area where everyone is passing through constantly. No smartphone. I know this sounds terrible, but no smartphones until they're kind of like almost out of high school. I mean, and that seems crazy, but, uh, and maybe everybody else has them in middle school or elementary school, but so far, my kids still have friends. They're still pretty normal. You know, <laughs> they may not like that initially, but you're still the parent. So, yep. You know, if they do come to you, again, with something, um, I have, I had a a situation like that, and my kindergartner came, and it's recounted in the book, you know, and came to me and said, you know, Katie said that girls can marry girls. And, you know, we had to have that conversation right there in the kitchen (laughs) when I was ladling soup for him, and I had to explain certain things that, no, honey, you know, without getting explicit, I just had to say, no, honey, they can't, and... Katie's really sweet, but she's wrong on this. And, you know, mommies and daddies are what God made for, for children, and children need mommies and daddies. And so, you see, I could, like, kind of finesse that without using sex at all. You right. can talk about that. There was the, there's a natural order of the family that God um, and nature, you know, gives to a child. So, um, and I have to tell you that because of that, I realized, okay, and we, we had known there, there was in, I was in a, it was a charter school at the time, a public charter school, and there was a lesbian parent, couple that had two girls in his class, in his class. And we didn't know anything about where they had, how they got the girls or what, you know, who was born to whom or what it was like. But we realized even two years in, like by first grade, we thought, well, you know what, maybe quietly we're going to just make a switch in schooling. And we did. We didn't want at his age for him to have to confront these types of issues all the time and have other parents be fine with it and other kids be fine with it. So that's a hard thing, too. When your kids have been confronted with something, sometimes, and again, this is going to make you not the favorite person to the world, but, some, but you have to protect your child. You have to shelter them in those, in those early years. And we did. We made the switch. And now he's in a 
a very solid Catholic school. You can't be afraid to do that as well. Again, it's, it's, we don't want to be different or odd, but we're Catholic, and you know what? We kind of are meant to carry our crosses, and that's, and that's part of our cross, is not being acceptable or accepted by everyone out there in the world. Hard choices sometimes have to be made. Absolutely. I mean, Christ himself tells us that we're supposed to live in this world, but not of this world. And I think we're seeing that, yeah, especially come true in today's culture, especially with parenting. So you're you're right. It may not make you the most popular person. It may not make you the most popular mom and dad with your kids either. But when it comes to it, yeah, that's what we're called to. That's what the Lord calls us to, whether it's popular or not. Exactly. And and I will note, too, that like when we did make that switch, we didn't do it with any fanfare. We didn't discuss why. We didn't. We just quietly made the switch. And nobody, you know, was, we didn't insult anyone or make anybody feel bad. We just realized that for our child, this wasn't a good fit. Right, right. And that's, a, yeah, a choice that you definitely, like, discern as his parent, too, and, like, mm-hmm. child by child, for sure. Absolutely. Exactly. What kind of different conversations should parents have with their daughters versus their sons? And what should be emphasized or encouraged or challenged with our children when it comes to teaching them how to accept their God-given masculinity and femininity? Huge topic these days because we have forgotten, even many, many Catholics, uh, that there's a complementarity that is absolutely beautiful that God gave and that he wanted to be there, that it's not just incidental genitals that make us different, um, but that there's a nature, there's a feminine nature and there's a masculine nature, and it's okay to say that that's true, and we want that to be true because that's God's creation, that's his created order. So um, different ways that we could speak about things to girls as opposed to boys. You know, to me, the contraception issue comes up, for example, it, it, it occurred. It, we're so careful now to not want to make our girls feel less than, or um, you know, there's a lot of girl power stuff out there that we're hearing, and oh, you know, girls as made, you know, that we need to give them self-esteem and, and stuff like that. Which I don't even necessarily buy into all that mindset, but let's say it's out there. The last thing that you'd want to do, and you have to even ask your uh, teens who are very, um, you know, socially aware and all that. What could, I mean, you ask yourself first, but what could make a girl more um, insecure and feel less happy about being a woman than saying that, you know what, like all these slick ads do, you can only be successful and do what you want and get a house and get a job and travel if you alter your body. If you alter your female body with chemicals, with implants, with you know, all these different devices, and that will make you be like a man in your body's inability to become pregnant. Then, then you can be this great woman. What does that say to a girl who is made a certain way by God? It says that her body is kind of not made right, like something has to be fixed or altered in order for her to be happy. And that, I would think, would do a number on on the self-esteem of a girl, you know, it, it, even if it's, if it's subconscious. So, you know, maybe that might be why we have so many girls, you know, who feel like guys have it better. Well, because we're saying that unless they have a body that's kind of like a guy, never being able to get pregnant and also being able to act on your sexuality whenever you feel like it, which is more of a, of a guy drive, um, we're saying, well, then you're not, you're not really good. You know, things aren't that good for you. Why? So, so you would talk to a daughter maybe in a different way on that issue. Um, pornography, gosh, we know that men are visual. We know that porn is a bigger snare for, for men than for women. However, 
a lot of girls are getting caught up in it too, but we have to be careful and, and remember that girls, porn for them is very emotional too. You know, you look at Fifty Shades of Grey and you realize 120 million people bought that book or something. The vast majority are female. What were they getting out of that? You know, there's kind of this emotional porn that comes into their lives because they're a little bit different than how they take these things in than, than men. So um, we talk about some of that in the book as well. Uh, but nobody is immune to it. It's just there's a different, because we have different natures, there might be different ways that they get trapped or snared into these sins. Absolutely. When we're talking about these subjects, these are all the Catholic stance on, on subjects that when it comes to human sexuality, when it comes to marriage, definitely fly in the face of what the culture says is right or what's true. And so when you're raising your children in with this Catholic worldview, some people may look at how Catholic parents have conversations with their kids about sexuality and marriage and, and think that we're forcing our religious beliefs on our kids. So how can we respond to that accusation? A couple of different ways. First, I always explain to my kids, um, because it's not immediately clear anymore, that there's a difference between the natural law truths, which are the we also can call it the universal moral law, and Catholic, specifically Catholic doctrine. So, for example, someone might say, well, you can't impose your view of marriage um, as male-female, you know, on the rest of us. You can't impose that religious view. And the answer there would be, well, wait a second. Every human society, Christian or not, from the beginning, a bride always presupposed a bridegroom. I mean, you always had a bride and a bridegroom. You never had two brides. That's true in atheist countries right now. That's true in places that don't want to have anything to do with the Catholic religion right now. So it's not, that's, that's a universal understanding that we've had based on the nature of, of, of male and female, based on the nature of marriage. It's, it's what I call a universal as opposed to if someone were to say, um, you know, if we were to say we are going to pass a law that everybody has to go to Mass on Sunday. Well, no, that's clearly a Catholic thing. That's a Catholic thing, going to Mass on Sunday. You can't pass a law that says people who, you know, aren't Catholic have to go to Mass or have to believe in the Trinity or have to, um, you know, partake of the sacraments or they legally must believe in the Marian doctrines. Those are, those are Catholic creedal type things. But the moral law, for example, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. I mean, there's all these things that we know are universally understood in every culture and every time. Whether or not they're, you know, precisely applied doesn't matter. They're known to the conscience of man, mankind. Those are universal. Those are how we, how we treat people. Those are how we act as moral agents. So even something like marriage... Nobody imposed that view of marriage on the world, our view. That's always been the view. Male-female, conjugal union has always been the view of marriage. What, and and even, even if you're going to talk about polygamy, it was still conjugal between male and female. I mean, that part of it is understood, that you have to have a consummation to have a marriage. The thing that was imposed, as my kids very easily understood, you know, when it's explained, the thing that was imposed was the idea that you don't have to have a bride and groom. It doesn't have to be a conjugal union. That was a new idea that came on the scene. So the imposition isn't from us. We just wanted to keep the status quo. So when you start to explain things like that to the kids, they start to see the big picture and realize, oh, let me step outside of this one second in time and realize that that's, that's not what's happening, even though people are saying that's what the church is doing. That's not what the church is doing. There's no imposition there. I love that difference between this is the natural truth, this is natural law, and this is like a religious belief. And I love that differentiation mm -hmm. when it comes to explaining that to not, especially non-Catholics who are kind of looking in on your parenting decisions. That's a beautiful way of, mm -hmm. of differentiating. 
it's important. And once once that bell goes off, you know, especially in your teenager's mind, um, it's it's really not that complicated to understand. That's the beauty of that's the beauty of natural law in general. None of this, and I think you probably can attest to the book is very easy to read. It's it's oh, not. Yeah. Rocket science. You know, this no. stuff is basic truth that everybody can understand. For sure. Like you said, like if teenagers and grade schoolers are being able to grasp this and, and acknowledge it, we definitely can grasp and acknowledge this as adults when it comes to our role as teaching them, for sure. Yes, definitely. Even with, sadly, with the best intentions and prayers of their parents, some children will choose to walk away from the Catholic faith. What words of encouragement would you offer to parents or listeners who are in that situation and listening in on this conversation? Yes, that's a sad reality. You know, I always Free will, free will. Every single human being, you know, above the age of reason is going to use free will, which is the greatest gift. You know, God gave us this gift. It's the one thing He does not touch. It's the one thing that's completely ours, is our choice, you know, our choice to act, our our free will decisions. And so, with that, there's some treachery, there's some danger. And even in the best families, even in the best with the best intentions and the best teaching, there will be people who your children might choose a different path. And it, it happens. And what do we do? What do we do as parents? We, we pray. We pray. And I know that sounds trite, but honestly, you have to think about this. Well, first of all, you know, the go-to uh, is, is St. Monica, and we dedicate the book to her. St. Monica prayed and prayed for 14 years for St. Augustine, her son, and he came back with a vengeance to the Church. But she cried, and she had the, the gift of tears, and she, um, you know, she just made sure that that was her mission, was to just pray and become holy and to, and to pray her child back to God. People forget that, because again, we haven't been schooled very much in, in the, the spiritual theology and mystical theology, but in prayer and in our path to holiness, there are stages that we go through. And so the saints who were able to get to that third stage of holiness back, you know, to get to union with God even on earth in their prayer life and, and in their, um, you know, their unity, their, their unity with God on this earth, their prayers were very powerful. Their prayers were more powerful than my prayer, for example. So become a saint. Your, James 5.16 says the, the prayer of the righteous avails much. The more righteous you are, the more holy you are, the closer you are to the heart of the Trinity, the more powerful your prayer will be. So we are not helpless, and we are not hopeless, because we can advance in our interior lives to the point where we are very close, very close to the heart of the Trinity and the Blessed Mother, and, and our prayers do become stronger and more efficacious. So what better gift can we give than to be a saint for our children? and then pray them back into the church. Like you said, like if prayer is not trite, it's not just a, you know, oh, pray, it'll be okay. No, prayer is so powerful, and it's so easy to forget the beautiful power of prayer, and it's something that we can definitely lean to. Absolutely. And, and another thing is you have to remember, they will, when I said that when natural law, you know, when, when the nature of a thing is followed, when someone something is used according to its nature and things flourish, and then when they aren't used according to their nature, then things tend to fall apart, that your kids can see that all around them, and also they can see the effects of that in their own lives as they're going through, you know, bad choices. They can see that there's darkness around, that it's not really making them happy. And even if it does for a while, because there's the pleasure principle, it's it's not going to last. It's nothing that can last because you can't use something against its nature forever and, and think that it's going to be, um, you know, good. It doesn't end up that way. So in some ways, that's its own teacher, you know, using the, the kids who grow up and they use human sexuality or against its nature will find that things do tend to fall apart. 
and somehow, you know, sometimes in God's severe mercy, that's how he brings them back. So, um, so, and you can show your teenagers too, you know, even the ones that haven't, haven't gone astray, you could say, look, my, my kids learned that. They would see some of their friends engaging in activities that didn't bring happiness, and in fact, disaster would follow. And they could see it play out. So that, that's the way, in the practical terms, the theory, you know, suddenly becomes reality when you look around. So all of these conversations that we've had today uh, with Layla are found in her new book that she's co-authored with Trent Horn, Made This Way, How to Prepare Kids to Face Today's Tough Moral Issues. Layla, where can listeners find this this book, Made This Way, but also your two other books? And where can they find you online? Sure. So Made This Way, um, you can go to shop.catholic.com, and that's the Catholic Answers store. So shop.catholic.com. Um, the Raising Chase Catholic Men is actually in its, uh, it, it, a publisher ended up picking that one up, and that's through Holy Heroes, uh, holyheroes.com. And be sure to get the second edition. It's got a lot of new good stuff. And then um, Primal Loss, the Now Adult Children of Divorce Speak, Amazon is where that is. That's really powerful if any of your listeners are adult children of divorce. It's extremely powerful. Seventy people contributed to giving me their answers to simple questions. And all three of them also are, are available on um, on Amazon. But uh, but the two publishers, yeah, Catholic Answers and then Holy Heroes. My archived uh, blog is Little Catholic Bubble, and you can Google that. It's pretty much just eight years of, of articles that you might enjoy. And then um, I'm now on LaylaMiller.net, which is L-E-I-L-A Miller.net. Beautiful. I'll put this all in the show notes, too, so that we can find them all in one spot as well. Great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Leila. Thanks for sharing just your the wisdom that you've gained through the Raisin 8 Little People and this the book, this absolutely beautiful resource that, yeah, if this is conversations that you have been worried about having with your kids or don't quite know how you respond, I definitely would recommend picking this up. We have a little one on the way in May, so I, they're not they're not asking oh. questions yet, but I'm, I oh, would. congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. But I, I know I'm going to be pulling this one off the shelves um, as they start uh. to get more inquisitive. So I'm, I'm excited to have this one on the bookshelves for sure. Oh, well, you sounds like you, you were, I love your parents. <laughs> and, <laughs> you get along. <laughs> um, congratulations. That's just wonderful. You're going to be a wonderful, wonderful parent. It's oh, amazing. thank you so much. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for coming on the show today. And we'll, we'll close out the episode with a glory be. Um, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Never shall be. World without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.